Um, I don't know. Any anyone got anything before I officially start? Uh, no, I just want to say it's good to be with you, gentlemen. It's good to have you again. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for squeezing me in, Daniel. I appreciate it. <laughs> no, it's good. When, whenever, if you're like, hey, I want to come and talk about something, I'll be like, yes. Yes. It's not really squeezing you in. Like, we're usually trying to squeeze our own. I'm just joking. Ideas. You guys must have some kind of drive, some kind of intellectual drive to keep doing this podcast. I mean, most, most of my friends who have started a podcast give up after like four episodes. Mm-hmm. No, we do. So we like plan out the seasons ahead of time. So we know exactly what we're going to talk about between now and like the first of September. And then we like plant guests in. So that way we're like committed, like socially to actually doing the thing. <laughs> it kind of forces our hand. Yep. We have to like. Your commitment is strong. Us. It is. Commitment is strong with you. It was it was tough to get back into this though because we almost like we we quit for like three weeks mm-hmm. and we were like oh there's a fire it's the end of the semester we're done like we're not we're gonna done. do anything right now yeah and for most other people that three weeks turns into six weeks turns into a year right <laughs> and we are, and we are back so well yes I just wanted to commend you for that well thank you it is it is a journey. That's what I'm going to leave at the beginning is Luke commending us. <laughs> that's our that's We're our intro here. now. <laughs> We're still mm-hmm. drunken. Mm-hmm. Start with the part that makes you look good. Yep. And it's <clears throat> all downhill from here. <laughs> and on and on that note, uh, we will start in three, two, one. everyone and welcome to another episode of the psychosocial distancing podcast i'm one of your hosts daniel chadborn with me as always is thomas brooks hello hello and joining us for a special episode on the history of religion is dr luke ritter hi hi you're back i'm back yeah it's like we weren't talking a bunch before then no not at all (laughs) so shameless plug uh Luke was here, what, back in December, uh, talking mm-hmm. about the history of American conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. Um, and we wanted to have him back because he also teaches and does research in history of religion in the United States and more generally at large. So we thought that maybe having you on would be a good idea because last episode, we kind of talked about how psychology deals with the religion. And we went through major theoretical frames that are used, whether or not it's a functional adaptation or whether it's like an accidental effect of other functional adaptations. Does it ward off existential dread? Is it just a meme that acts as a parasite and consumes the host and makes them do irrational behavior? And I feel like those are all great and fun questions to talk about, but usually when we have conversations about religion, scholastically, I guess. Um, The history of religion plays a prominent role um, in terms of framing those discussions. So I wanted to get your opinion on and kind of lay out the land for us what uh, the history history has to say about religious behavior uh, in the context of humans in general. And then a little bit later, we can talk about America specifically, because we do definitely enjoy our religious behavior here. Yeah, for sure. Uh, So I'd be interested to hear from you guys as well, uh, kind of how psychologists approach this subject. I mean, Thomas, I know um, you're teaching a class on that. Daniel, I know you're really interested in the subject. So I'm excited to launch into this and just kind of see what our disciplines are are doing. Um, So for, for the discipline of history, 
that sort of separated from philosophy and theology during the Enlightenment. Uh, and, and that was a time in which intellectuals attempted to apply secular reasoning to a host of issues plaguing humanity at the time, such as poor governance or poor health care. The Enlightenment thinkers of the 18th century, many of whom went on to found the first democratic governments in the modern era, uh, believed that a study of human behavior in the past could somehow shed light on human behavior in the present and even like help solve some of the pressing political and social problems. It has since been deemed an overly optimistic project, but <laughs> but the discipline of history uh, was formed in this context. And, and all of that is to say that the, the founders of modern historicism established rational empiricism as the epistemological foundation of the fields. The very first rule of historicism then is that all conclusions must logically follow from the evidence available to all observers, meaning all conclusions must be drawn from that which we can observe with at least one of our five senses. Mm -hmm. And then the second rule of historicism is that all scholarship must seek the approval of a consensus of qualified experts who agree with the basic principle of rational empirical inquiry. And, and so that's our foundation. And that's why when we talk about the discipline of history, we're referring to essentially a pursuit of well justified beliefs about the human past and well justified has already been defined as empirical and evidence-based so because of the nature of history and that we can't you know have all five senses going at the same time in these historical contexts because they've already happened what kind of evidence then do you draw on to lead you down this logical conclusion. Right, so, I mean, I am always humble when we start talking about epistemological foundations because, you know, I recognize that academic history is constrained. One of the constraints is that, like, we haven't developed time machines yet. And so we can't, <laughs> like, go back and experience things for ourselves. So, we, we use our senses on extant evidence, on that which is still available for us to, you know, see and touch and, and interpret. Um, and, and, and so that's, that's a big limitation, really. I mean, we're constrained by that which is still, like, here for us mm -hmm. to examine, right? It, it's also limited, self-limited by a cohort of historians who guard the integrity of the discipline by adhering to the rules. And, and so th this is why, I mean, just, just as a, an olive branch to you psychology people, I mean, this is why I am a strong supporter of the humanities in general. Like history provides only one insight about humanity while other disciplines such as the study of literature, philosophy, psychology, theology, these entail methods that allow for different sorts of inquiries. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, absolutely. It, it, you're kind of thinking about like the way you're, you're, you're kind of describing historical um, methodology behind history um, or the study of history would be um, kind of similar to to looking at it from like like so with the psych perspective we're doing a lot of that rational empiricism we have to do we're doing direct observations or we're asking right. people directly and so that's kind of one end and and thomas could probably speak more about that side of like how how psych psychology does that in terms of like his psych of religion class my training um is in evolutionary psychology uh and so there's a lot more of that like middle ground where we also 
didn't have a time machine when I'm studying shamanism uh, for my master's degree. And so it was like, well, all right, let's look at what we have and let's look at the historical context or the anthropological evidence or some, some couple of handful of studies on, you know, sociology to try to kind of like fill in the gaps um, because there's no way that was, was one of the limitations of my thesis was like, well, I don't have the money to go across the globe and do actual interviews with medicine men and women with healers, you know, in, in their fields. Um, so it was, um, it's kind of this, this like spectrum of the use of, of, I guess, rational empiricism on either historical texts versus with like live participants. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. Cause I would say the majority of the psycho like not in evolutionary psychology but evolutionary psychology still uses these methods but it's a lot of survey a lot of interview and it's a lot of not so much the study of the religion itself but of how people interact with and feel about and behave within the context of those religions and so we can do a little extra work and study the theology of the religion and say like here's the context but the point of the study would always be what's the affect what's the behavior what's the cognition within those social constraints we don't usually look at those social constraints themselves we are definitely beholden to the historians and the anthropologists yes uh, when it <laughs> comes to that yeah for that background because yeah. the psychologists aren't doing it nope we're looking at it post hoc um and we might talk about like the history of that religion in a paper or within that context, but be like, this other person wrote about it. <laughs> we're not, we're not going to reinvent the, the wheel on this, this established history of this, but we want to see how this now shapes modern behavior. Right. And as much as we would like to, as historians, we can't interview Napoleon Bonaparte. Um, but but you focus on interviewing people, subjects, and you are able to gather a great deal of information about how the human psyche works uh, that, you know, historians don't, they don't touch that. They wouldn't dare uh, because there's just not enough evidence about uh, Napoleon Bonaparte's cognition to make judgments uh, about his psychological state. <clears throat> Although the psychologists uh, are quite daring and they would try to do a... Uh cognitive interview of Napoleon Bonaparte through evidence. Well, that's fun. That's fun. <laughs> autoethnography, or not autoethnography. Uh, psychobiography. Uh, psychobiography. Yeah, we interviewed some <laughs> of the people who used that method. It was very, very interesting, the process. Mm, suspect. It's <laughs> <laughs> be our next episode. We're going to get you on, Luke, and we're going to get one of our psychobiographers uh -oh. on. And uh, uh -oh. it's going to be appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> Is your CV appropriate? <laughs> oh, I don't. I don't think we'd put either of our guests in that situation. No, we they were quite lovely. <laughs> um, so I guess to start, well, we have kind of our epistemology of history research. How does history deal with religion? Because, as you said, it kind of gets disentangled from philosophy and theology. So, where are those lines? What is a historian doing that, say, a theologist is not doing? Religion poses a particularly tricky problem for historians who want to be true to their agreed upon empirical methods. I mean, for starters, each of the world's religions includes miracle stories mm -hmm. at, at the mythical base. So I, here's a question. What is a miracle? What do you think a miracle is? Oh. How would you define it? Yeah, I don't know about this one. Like, I feel like it's like a trap. It, it is a trap. I know it's a trap. <laughs> I'll say a miracle is something that can't be studied empirically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it would, it would be, it would be I'll some. I'll define it by where it's not. How about some, that? Some un, un, unexplainable or, or event attributed to some supernatural cause, which proxy, it's the same thing that we kind of touched on um, last week. You can't really study the existence or non-existence of the supernatural if you're trying to like hold right. 
to... You, you used a word there, supernatural. That was actually a word developed by theologians. And it was to develop a whole new category for existence uh, that was other than the reality that we experience, which is taken to be the natural world. So supernatural means over or above the natural world. Uh, it's, a, it's an invented category. It, it's not something that's been observed. Uh, it's just something, something that is posited to exist beyond our, our understanding. So I, look, I ask this question to a lot of people and my sense is, and tell me if you think I'm wrong, that when we say miracle, what we mean is something that's supposed to be impossible. Like at least within the natural world that, that seems to be reality and that all of us seem to have access to. So I, I don't think what religious adherents have meant by miracle is simply something extraordinary. Extraordinary things happen every day. Like the odds of winning the Powerball are astronomical, which is why I don't play it. But, but some individual somewhere wins every round mm -hmm. reliably. So I don't think that's what we mean. We don't mean extraordinary. By miracle, we mean impossible, given a purely naturalistic reality. So, so how, and, and this is what you guys were raising, how does a historian offer up an explanation for past events that is by definition impossible. Think about that. I mean, ultimately, doesn't it come down to like recreations of Noah's Ark and Kentucky and like, we found Jesus's grave. No, it wasn't there. It's here. No, it wasn't there. It's here. Is that ultimately <laughs> what it devolves into? Or like even like the hope that <laughs> there are at least some individuals who are maybe trying to apply, I guess, modern technology to help understand. So like, oh, can, you know, is, is the Shroud of Turin accurate? Something like that. But those two things that you brought up, it's like, I feel like you're undermining miracle by, by bringing yeah. that, like, because if something has a naturalist explanation, it's not a miracle. A miracle. It's mm. just an extraordinary thing. So at which point you undermine the divinity of the text. Ooh, okay. And so, and so the, the, the appropriate way to study it is to avoid it. At all costs? At all costs. <laughs> because it's... Or, or to talk about it in maybe the sense of this is what this group of people believes. But well, even then, like, I could, you, you can open a can of worms. Well, well immediately... I want to qualify what I've stated so far. So one of my historians of the Bible, one of my favorite historians in general is Bart Ehrman. Uh, and he explained history is not the past. And he's right. If you think about it, like trillions upon trillions of things have happened in the past have actually happened. But out of all of those things, we only know about that, which has been recorded in the extant evidence, uh, which is a small percentage of the things that have happened in the past. So to say historians do not have evidence to conclude that Holy Mother Mary appeared to George Washington at the Battle of Valley Forge is not necessarily to say that Mary didn't miraculously appear before Washington or that Mary can't appear supernaturally to people at all. Uh, so theologians such as Thomas Aquinas have referred to a sensus divinitatis, a divine sense is the translation, uh, or like a sixth sense, okay. so to speak, that allows humans to interact with the supernatural and to know that they are. Uh, Buddhists has, have a similar concept. Uh, it's called the Vijnana. Does such a sense exist? Do we have a sixth sense that allows us to somehow communicate with some divine realm. I mean, again, such a thing might exist, but it is not subject to historical demonstration for, mm -hmm. for all the reasons I've already listed. So 
Historians then, in answer to your question, Daniel, they tend to offer other explanations for religious beliefs or miracle claims than God did it. I mean, much like if, if you were to ask about the sixth sense and say, hey, has some psychologists studied that? Yes, the answer is yes, they have. And they've tried to quantify it in some sort of natural, because they're trying to offer some other explanation for it, um, because they can't study it on that supernatural level. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it's not they... a satisfying answer. No. <laughs> in fact, they... they rarely come up with answers. Which makes me think it, we are illy, ill-prepared to study that question. Hmm. That's a tough one. I mean, so with the, the psychological studies that have been arranged, isn't there a fundamental problem that you are using natural methods and, and, and our five senses to try to interact with or, or observe supernatural, I mean, something that is by definition outside of the natural that requires more than the five senses. So isn't the study flawed from the beginning? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, that's usually why those are either people who... Uh, Re, even if they're they're legitimate researchers, they're they're researchers who are kind of invested in wanting to prove it true because they want like ESP to be real or they want um, that divine sense. They want to be able to prove that, um, or they're on the other end of the spectrum where they're trying to prove it all wrong um, right. to 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 make it, it less likely, you know, for people to believe in this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's why, like, when we study it, we, we're not studying the existence of ESP. We're not studying the existence of God. We're studying, all right, what is the difference between the person who has a belief in God and doesn't? Mm-hmm. What is the difference between someone who um, is Buddhist versus Taoist versus Christian versus, you know, Protestant versus... Um, Jewish versus Muslim. Like we're not, we're not studying the underpinning claims of the religion um, for, for the same reason, like, because you can't, we can't, I mean, we, we can't study it because we can't wrap it within the realm of that rational empiricism. Hmm. So it sounds like we're in the same boat on this one. And, and that's not surprising because we're part of a similar tradition of academic development in the Western world. As it, to me, it seems like people oftentimes confuse methodological naturalism and philosophical naturalism. So philosophical naturalism is the claim that nature is all that there is. That's a claim. That's a claim that needs you need to provide argumentation for that, explanation for that. That's not what historians do. Like we're we're not in the philosophy business. Uh, methodological naturalism is simply an approach to studying reality. It, it assumes we can adequately reconstruct actual past events using rational empirical inquiry. And I think as a psychologist, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Would it, would it be correct to say that you're assuming that using empirical methods, you can somehow accurately reconstruct another person's psychological state? Maybe not reconstruct, but represent. Okay. Or rep or replicate possibly. Or replicate, yeah. So we could take we could take a um so I mean we let we could use something religious themed and say something like, all right, there's this intense meditative state that people can enter. So whether you're you're engaging in let's say like Buddhist meditation or uh intense prayer, um there there's been research to show that there are certain um they've hooked people up 
to to diodes and then put them into fMRIs to look at how the brain reacts to that. Mm-hmm. We can put them into similar states, similar meditative states, and show um, that either these states or these 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 different situations can kind of replicate or create okay. um, those mm-hmm. those same brain processes or this, that same activity, um, that intense experience, whether it be a connection to the universe or a connection with God, whatever they're perceiving their experience to be. Um, but we can see what actually is going on in the brain at the time, or we can see how a person's brain might react or how physiologically they might react to that. We do know that that putting people in like a meditative state or a, a prayer state can actually calm a person down it can it, it, it can have a positive effect on stress and a number of other things um and so whether or not it's it's prayer that is healing them we can't you know but we could say that it has effects and we can show and replicate those effects with that yeah. so yeah i think it would be there's two different things like with the representation and the rep <clears throat> and the replication right so like the representation is the data that is collected and visualized from the fMRI. So we can take that state or that psychological state of the human and then represent it within some sort of data visualization like we do with a survey. So we can like plot them out and look at them in comparison to peers on like how religious they are, how devoted they are, how much they believe in God. Um, And then we can also then, like Daniel said, manipulate that particular phenomenon. So like, are you stressed out? Well, let's put together this prayer intervention for you and see if that like pre and post test changes. And so we don't make the claim about like the prayer, the deity that you're praying to healed you, but the act of praying did. Or could have had a positive effect on... Uh, stress, which would have had a positive effect on the healing process. Mm-hmm. So but maybe all, not all reconstruct, but definitely replicate and represent because we're not working in the past. Right. Uh, that makes sense why you use those words, replicate and represent. And it just struck me that all of the the findings that you were sort of laying out there, like none of them testify to whether or not a supernatural realm exists Mm -hmm. all you've done is kind of observed using your five senses what happens inside a human brain while having these experiences Um, and and so is this why daniel you you sort of you've looked at the findings from the field and you thought well the honest thing to say here is we don't know. We we have not made a determination on on this uh, issue. Uh, yeah, I think because any any psychologist who came out and said like I have proof of God <laughs> is going to be laughed out of existence. I mean, um, the same as anyone who came out and said I have no proof of God. Um, but there are there are who you know there are some who have kind of moved into like some speculative sense. Um, which kind of starts getting a lot more philosophical as opposed to psychological and to getting into like, well, what if the existence of God is personal? Like what if having a mental representation, which we may not be able to replicate fully, we may not be able to see in the brain as clearly, um, but is very real for the person involved, almost like a, like, like we don't hundred percent understand the placebo effect. Because right. it's really hard to study nothing having an effect um, just because the person believes that there's going to be an effect. Suddenly they're nauseous because they believe that this sugar pill is going to have a side effect of nausea. Like that is, it's, it's reproducible. We can replicate it. We can keep doing it. And study after study, there are, there are certain psychological traits that are associated with it. That, that are associated with a lot of other things. But why does it happen? Uh, we could speculate. 
Um, and that's, that's kind of where, you know, what, that's why I don't think I would ever say, um, as someone who studied psycho religion, who studied, you know, kind of, you know, evolutionary perspectives and a number of different religious backgrounds, like there's, I'm not going to discount the shaman having intense, um, spiritual experiences out in the woods as real to them. Um, just because I might have like a, a natural ask, you know, all right, maybe part of it has to do with meditation. Maybe part of it has to do with, um, ayahuasca or some other psychedelic substance. Maybe there's a component that we can't test that we don't have access to. Um, and so it's, it's, you're never going to get me to be like, definitely, this is what's going on. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, take the issue of, of the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. Mm -hmm. It's like, they say that the bread and the wine that is consecrated by a priest, like actually becomes in essence, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And it's like, well, at first you might think that can be tested. And, and, and by the way, people have stolen away bits of consecrated Eucharist and and they have tested it. It has happened. And guess what? It comes back as bread or, or wine, but that doesn't at all. um, I don't know. That doesn't at all undermine a Catholic claim, which is, which is not that the substance of, of the bread and the wine might appear to be bread and wine, but they're saying that there is another dimension. There's another sense that you need in order to access or communicate or interact with this divine realm. And so it's like, it, it, it seems to me, Daniel and Thomas, like over and over again, that, that it, it, all of these claims to divinity it's they just fall they often fall outside of what our methods allow us to determine over and over again there are certain things we can deal with so we can take the bread and wine and we can be like hey look it's bread and wine but has has that uh falsified their claim no you know has it proved or disproved god no um so it's like we're kind of when it comes to to miraculous claims we're sort of we're stuck and and it's like we need to appeal to other fields to address these things because we given our methods we're not going to be able to to do it <laughs> yeah I, I think that's part of where some of our conflict does come in into play when we we think about that because i think if you have that understanding if you're like all right i'm a scientist i'm doing rational empirical science like this is what i can focus on this is what i can't focus on um versus maybe a person who doesn't view that line as clearly um and we start to get both people who maybe don't don't understand how you have like vatican scientists who are astronomers and who are historians and who are who are doing the same work and they're not really you know overlapping the, 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 you know, the, the, the natural and the supernatural, like they have that distinction between the two, you know, that there's, there's the Vatican or the, the, the priest. Compartmentalize. Right. Who, who's, who's actually doing like astrophysics up in an observatory, like right. in the mountains and is like, like, yeah, no, like we're studying the stars and we're studying the planets, we're studying physics and all this stuff. And they're like, what does that have to do? Like we could, we could, view this as a god created thing um a universe created by god but like that's not what we're studying here like we're studying (laughs) within the constraints of the natural universe and they compartmentalize and they separate those two and i I think that there are plenty of people who can do that um i think we both have non-historians and non-scientists and we have historians and scientists uh who who kind of don't compartmentalize that as well and that's where we kind of start getting into these conversations so that's when someone you know writes that pop history or pop psych book about well we could totally prove it or we could totally um you know examine this we can definitely look at this from a 
natural um, uh, viewpoint. And I mean, those tend to sell, but they create that kind of perception of that, or I guess that lack of compartmentalization, that, that there isn't this ability to differentiate between the two. We could talk about one without offending the other or without making broad generalizations about someone's religious beliefs. I don't know if that makes any sense. It makes complete sense to me, Daniel. Uh, I wanted to hear from Thomas. Like, Thomas, do you feel, do you feel that psychology is constrained in, in the same way that history is and that it would be sort of um, academically dishonest to make a claim as to whether or not there's a God interacting here or there? Yes, but I don't know if it's like a constraint, like as someone in psychology, I don't, I'm not particularly invested in using research to debate the existence of God or extraterrestrials or like supernatural occurrences. Like they're fun to write about and think about and like look at the effect that they have on people although they that does assume that they exist or at least it assumes that the person believes that they exist in the first place um but i don't know if that's necessarily a restraint like i feel like that's like you said earlier it's kind of not my job to do that um (laughs) (laughs) nobody is looking at it looking nobody should be looking to a psychologist on bated breath on whether or not their belief in God is valid or not. So I feel the the duty as as you were describing Thomas to compart, compartmentalize. So like there are certain questions that students ask me that like I just will not attempt to answer mm-hmm. as a professor teaching a history class because it's like okay I might have a thought about that maybe even dare I say an insight but. I'm not going to answer it because my discipline has these cons- th- these methods, which I will stick to. And, and that's my job. Mm-hmm. But take me away from that, you know, professor role. I'll talk about anything. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, honestly, I, I wish or, or let me say this. I hope I have a hope in somehow all of our fields collecting together into some kind of grand super knowledge. Like I, I I would like to think that if we were able to manage it, we could get history and psychology and literature and theology and philosophy, all and biology, we could get them all together and we could create some kind of grand theory of, of everything. And then that's, I, I, I think that's, that's the goal of the university is that us, disciplines all working together should be able to to lead to a higher knowledge than just what what one discipline can offer if that makes any sense so my question then is is do we need to start looking for other epistemologies outside of empiricism then if we want to tackle questions about deities and what does that look like do we need to cast away our shackles of uh, what scholarship means now to tackle those higher questions? Like how post-disciplinary are you willing to go with this? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, hmm. I mean, ideally what I want each discipline to do is to do what they do best, you know, apply your methods, show us your conclusions, but we need to have, we need to have a higher mind. We need, we need to have a a bigger, more holistic perspective that, that attempts at least to, to unify the conclusions from all these different disciplines. And and so here I, I would point to like philosophy. Uh, theology even, um, often can do a good job of sort of unifying conclusions from different disciplines into a grand theory about what's going on uh, in in reality. Then you have to get us all to agree on it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, shoot. And um... I revealed myself as an idealist in this conversation. 
I'm just I'm thinking. Well, I'm thinking about. Uh, so we we talked to to Tracy Henley um, a while back about cognitive archaeology, mm-hmm. and and cognitive archaeology is really trying to bridge evolutionary biology, cognitive psychology, evolutionary psychology, anthropology, archaeology, some sociology, some history. That's trying to kind of like bridge kind of become like a super field and kind of bridge some of the gaps and say, look, we can, we can look at archeological evidence and we can study it on an anthropological level. We can, we can posit about the kind of cognitive capacities of the peoples who would, what would it take to make this? What would you need as a culture to have this? Um, but we also need to understand the history of the place and like, what do we know currently about that culture or about surrounding cultures? The biggest um, kind of site right now where they're where they're really trying to do this is, is Gobekli Tepe in um, is it Turkey, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and but that's one of those things, and the pushback. <laughs> the anthropologists don't want the psychologists in in their business. The the biologists don't want the you know the, the evolutionary biologists and the evolutionary psychologists are butting heads. Um, but it, it's, it's sort of like that everyone kind of feels like, like there's everyone else is stepping on their toes and that's kind of the big problem. But that, that I think is due to the nature of like modern academia, that, that publisher perish that like, you got to fight for every scrap. We'd have to get, I think if we got rid of that. But that's, that's important. Yeah. I mean, for us to, to rigorously vet all of the findings that we want to present to our fellow scholars who are qualified to, to, to vet us. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think the ideal is that eventually you want someone to come along and synthesize everything that's been done and do it in a way that everyone would recognize as fair and, and accurately cataloging the findings. And, and this happens from time to time. It doesn't happen as often as we would like. It takes time. It, it, it requires an especially skilled person to do it. Uh, but but I've seen it done with the field of ancient history, especially regarding religion, Daniel. Um, I've seen scholars, historians actually, pull together anthropology, archaeology, paleontology, uh, zoology, uh, Every, I mean, it's like this um, amazing array of things into a grand interpretation of some human civilization. And I've seen it done very well. Uh, and, and it can be done and it can be extremely illuminating. It's just you can't expect a magnificent synthesis, you know, every year. It's going to be more right. like every 20 years. Yeah. I would say perhaps a good model might be sexology for this because like currently I'm going through an R&R right now and I've looked at the three reviewers and I'm like all three of you are in different fields and I think about like the literature reviews and the intros I have to write and there's always like the sociology section and the history section and then I have to give like medical and biology their own little section and then it all leads down to the psych study justification um and then it gets reviewed by people from different fields because there's not enough psychologists who study sex to have our own stuff because we share space with sociologists and anthropologists and historians and biologists and people like that so that could be a nice post-disciplinary model um and to be fair i've had the best revise and resubmits of my life in these journals because everybody's so nice and helpful and like sure I get terrible reviewers but like they often give me good advice on how to like revise and resubmit and it always ends up being a better paper at the end when I've included like someone's like oh hey you need to read this sociologist reach out to them and get their like book chapter that they're writing right now that I just reviewed that's still in a word document And I'm like, okay. So I email this stranger. I'm like, hey, would you give me your draft? <laughs> and they do. I mean, it, it, that's great, Thomas. I, I can see that. But studying religion, I think, is a sim. I had a similar sort of experience where what you find is that 
there are very few scholars who are like, I study religion. It's what what ends up happening is it's like it's a hodgepodge mm-hmm. of people from different fields. And so, yeah, when you submit to like a religious studies journal, you're going to get people from all these all different. Over. Yeah. Yeah. And so you end up learning a great deal about what anthropology is saying, what archaeology is saying, what what theology is saying. And, and you you sort of you piece it together. Uh, and you become yourself a synthetic tool, you know, and, and, and I mean, for, for my history of religion class, I spend so much time actually reading scholars uh, who, who write about, you know, findings regarding religion, like deep in the past. I mean, like tens of thousands of years ago, and this is stuff that I'm not familiar with at all, but it, it provides a tremendous insight into where our religious beliefs come from and how humans might be using religion uh, to get on. So, we have just battered the walls of epistemology and disciplinary differences. Uh, What is your main focus with history of religion? Can you kind of give us, like, what is the thing that gets you interested and up on your soapbox about? Um, I have a feeling it's American religions could you kind of walk us through like how you approach religion in america what kind of findings that about religions religious movements in america that you find particularly interesting um and kind of give us some tangible on the ground historian experience with this topic sure i mean speaking of the ancient stuff i mean as far back as we can go um it, it appears based on the evidence that exists that humans believed in some kind of deity, deities, supernatural realms, supernatural beings. Um, I, I can't think of a single society that has been uncovered uh, in archaeological digs um, by, by historians, by anthropologists that doesn't include some religious aspect. It is as old as humanity. And that in and of itself makes me wonder, you know, like what, (laughs) why, like, why is it there? Um, Where did this come from? What, what function does it serve that it has persisted for so long? So, I mean, that's my kind of like deep fundamental question. And then, and then beyond that, what I noticed in studying like US history, which is my specialty, is that religion forms an absolutely crucial role in the structure of the state, in the structure of societies. Uh, and it, it, to me, and, and I have students tell me this after taking the class, but I mean, to me, it's like you can't quite understand uh, the United States and its history without understanding its religious roots. I mean, it, it, religion and the state are so closely tied together that it, it, it completely makes sense uh, to study people's religious beliefs. So is the United States a Christian nation? <laughs> um, is the United States a Christian nation? So it depends on what sense you mean that in. So is it a nation composed primarily of Christians? The answer is yes. Absolutely. <laughs> Fair. if you're suggesting that somehow the structure of the government at the federal level down to the state levels is somehow what based on christianity rooted in christianity privileges christianity that's a more complicated question do you want to unpick that Sure. So, I mean, one of the fundamental insights I've garnered from like anthropologists, uh, from, from historians who study the ancient past, is that religion has functioned as a sort of uh, language of trust so that you are able to uh, identify with people who you've never met uh, if they ascribe to a certain set of religious doctrines with you and there are certain 
rituals that they can conduct to like show you that they believe in the same doctrines that you do. And this allows you to, and, and this works for people in the thousands. Like it's, you know, for, for most of, of human history, like people have been running around in small groups of about 50. But it's, it's the large scale civilizations 12,000 years ago that developed these sort of super beings, these supernatural punishing gods um, that, that had like, we're, we're all power, powerful, right? And, and, and so people were um, using that as a language of trust. Do you, do you believe in Zeus? You know, and, and if that person demonstrated that they did, you were able to interact with them uh, much, much more fluidly than someone who, you know, you didn't know anything about. Um, and so, so I think there's a, a really convincing case to be made that, you know, belief in, in gods served as, you know, a system of trust. And so the, the way I connect that to U.S. history is like in the age of enlightenment and democratic movements, people replaced the sovereignty as being sort of positioned over a king or a queen, you know, or in the case of a Catholic church, you know, the, the Pope and, and the bishops and the priests. And they, they reposition that authority and that sovereignty from, you know, these God appointed electors to the people. And thus created a nation based on the sovereignty of the people. Uh, nationalism then became based on this idea that the people are somehow sovereign and that the people interacting with each other is, is the ideal that we should pursue, people working together to bring about progress and change. And what I have noticed in my studies of the emergence of nationalism in, in the United States especially, you know, but also this occurred in Europe at the same time, you know, is that religion persevered as this language of trust and communication between disparate peoples across vast time and place. And it, it joined together with nationalism to produce this like uber nationalism. It's like, not just are the people sovereign, but God gave people the sovereignty and then boom, there you go. It's like, now it's not, it's not just that God gave the king or the queen sovereignty or the, the Pope sovereignty, God gave the people sovereignty. And so joining together religion and nationalism resulted in a very powerful story that early Americans were able to tell themselves. And, and I, I think that nationalism is quite powerful. But when you join religion to nationalism, it becomes especially powerful, almost unstoppable. Could you unpack uh, nationalism for me? Are we referring to the same nationalism that gets like talked about on news shows like 24 seven over the last like 10 years? Or is this like, is there like a more specific definition that we're referring to when talking about early democracies? All right, so I, I hear you, Thomas. We need to start wrapping this up. I get it. Um, so national- I mean, I can leave the two of you to talk about this <laughs> and I'll save my uh, ism of the week for next week. <laughs> no, I'll try, I'll try to be short. Um, there's so much to unpack here, um, but it, it, it seems to me like nationalism is the mythical story that a certain group of people have a privilege to a certain geopolitical territory. And, and those people, whatever it is, they have a certain set of values that connect them, right? And it, and it sort of draws a barrier between insiders and outsiders. And that nationalism for it to work successfully, it needs a story. It needs a compelling story about the foundation of this group of people. And Americans were particularly susceptible to, you know, being shown that their mythical story was sort of bogus because, you know, they they got on ships and came over, 
you know, from England and other places all over the world. They came from all over the world. And it's like, okay, what's your story? What's your founding story? Were, were your ancestors always here? No. Uh, and what they found in, in that experience, that migration experience was, was a religious story joined to a national story, right? So it, it was that God had always providentially intended for this group of people to come over to the new world and create a new Eden, uh, a new uh, Israel. Uh, for the world um, to to look upon, and that here in the United States, uh, God would finally carry out his his plans uh, for for the world. Um, and so, so they join those two things together uh, in the United States. And so, Christian nation is an interesting concept. Um, I I don't know. There's a lot to unpack there. I don't think that all the founders were on board with the United States being a Christian nation and they fought really hard to keep God out of the constitution. Mm -hmm. Um, some were, so it's, it's kind of, it's a complicated story. No, no, I'm just, I'm in thought. And I wanted to, it, it reminded me of the, like using religion as sort of that test reminded me of the, was the Hebrew word shibboleth. Uh, it's the tradition to kind of mark yourself as as one of the group as as a, as a member without having to to necessarily say it it's either a tr tradition or a statement or a phrase and i mean it's it's a great marker when we think about it in terms of like psychological identities if all you have to do is wear a cross around your neck or to you know say the right phrase or to to just know the right <laughs> to show yourself as a member of the group um it's a very easy way to to identify and bond with with other people especially in a you know in a country now of what 350 million people mm -hmm. yeah right and and you know within the modern u.s context it's you know some people have talked about it as um you know, democracy replacing, um, you know, godly appointed governance or something like that. And, and that, that's not quite right. It, it's not like it flipped over from one form to the other. It, it was more that uh, people believed that God endorsed or sanctified the Constitution. And if they believed that, then the Constitution becomes a sort of sacred document, right? Mm -hmm. And this yeah. is indeed what many evangelical Christian groups began to do in the 1800s, is they would claim the mantle of the American Revolution. And they would, they, they would preach that God had destined for the United States to be created as it was in order to bring about his purposes in America. Um, and that once his purposes were brought about in America, it would then revolutionize the rest of the world. And, and so this is how, you know, kind of religion and nationalism get tied together into, into one story, I guess, one story. The, the story is not there in the constitution, but, but it, is, it is structured all around it in the way that people uh, remembered it and thought about it. I mean, that definitely, like, I'm immediately thinking of more recent examples that kind of uh, embody that philosophy or spirit or worldview, I guess. Like, I'm thinking about, like, the United States being an instrument for God's, like, divine purposes on the planet. And I think of, like, our involvement in Middle Eastern stuff is also wrapped up in that narrative as well. I think about, like, the people who spend lots of money to suburbanize the West Bank uh, to bring about the uh, tribulation. Um. Yeah, I, the connections yeah. abound, Thomas, mm -hmm. and it's, and it, they abound through you know the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, and and even to the present day. And and that's that's what I encourage people you know to think about is is how religion has become intricately involved with sort of every mechanism of of the state 
uh, of our very story of ourselves. Uh, and and it's, it hasn't gone away. Um, and it's, it's been with us in a really uh, significant way. So it's, yeah, I mean, the, that's why I said the more we understand um, religion uh, and, and the role it's played in the United States, I think the better we understand America's actions, um, what, <laughs> what its foreign policy has been, um, mm-hmm. what its role has been in relation to, you know, medical care and, and uh, it, the economy. And I mean, just everything is tied into yeah. this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, our, our goal is to hopefully spend a lot more time unpacking uh, a lot of this to look at both the history, but also the modern context and, and how it kind of plays a role. And we've got some discussions and plans lined up for that. Hopefully we yes. can get into some of those modern connections. And, Exciting. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, as we hit our hour, I think I have the perfect American-ism of the week. I get to say, huzzah! Huzzah! For once, it's like, what, 93 episodes. Um, (laughs) I get to say, I I get to take on the role and be like, yay! Yay! So my ism is cosmicism. Which made me think from last week's ism, which was, uh, what was it? Ig, uh, Ig- Ignosticism. Ignosticism. So agnosticism being that we can't ask theological questions because we can't decide what God is. Cosmicism is that there is no recognized divine presence because we are too puny to understand it in the first place. And that... <laughs> as a god in the universe that humans are particularly insignificant in the larger scheme of intergalactic existence. So it's not just that the question isn't unimportant, it's that we are unimportant <laughs> to be even asking the question. I, I feel that this is coming from the same place as the other. The world is a, the universe is a, a uncaring, cold, cold. place and thus yet another definition by someone who is struggling with that transition between Gnosticism and atheism. So Cosmicism comes out, is the philosophical movement that comes out of H.P. Lovecraft's work. Ah. So there's a very, it's a uh, indifference. There, there, there are gods, there. but they are scary and indifferent and alien. Well, we don't know if there's gods because we're so insignificant That's we can't true. understand them if they're there. It's you know, not that we can't agree on them. Yeah. It's that we, like, we have no capacity. That's a new one for me, Thomas. I'm going to write that down. Um, right on. But I, I'm going to do the thing that a lot of humans do, which is they they take a new concept and they try to relate it to a concept they already understand. Yeah, um, go for it. So, like, this sounds to me a lot like what the founders of the United States believed in a lot, a lot of the enlightenment thinkers, which is deism, Mm. which is, you know, the watchmaker God, the idea that there was this creator supernatural being that started everything, but doesn't really care. Mm -hmm. Doesn't have any kind of uh, particular plan other than this is a God that likes laws. This is a God that likes gravity and the forces of electromagnetism. Not necessarily God that cares about like the everyday intricacies of Mm. personal lives. And so this is the God, this deus God that like Benjamin Franklin believed in, for example, Patrick Henry, George Washington, James Madison. There are a lot of founders of the United States who believed in a God that created everything, but didn't really care so much and wasn't a personal God. uh, And didn't certainly didn't interact with anyone. So like all, all the religious claims, all the miracle stories, they thought that was bogus. Um, so I, how does that how does that pair up with? I mean, it sounds like cosmicism is much more American than I thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I guess if you're if you're you're trying to take as to be rational and an approach to it, and you see, you know, nature exists and there are these laws that bind us, you could say, yep, yep, there was let there be light, and there was sort of the setting of all the 
the rules and laws of the universe in place and then it was like all right you guys have fun i'm gonna go <laughs> bye i'm gonna go to this other place that's what i exist. do that's what i do i create laws of nature that's my thing that's my jam know. that's all i do though right on cool awesome well deism cosmicism agnosticism <laughs> i think that wraps episode two of our religious studies yeah so i guess i guess with that we'll we'll bid our listeners adieu Thank you so much for joining us, Luke. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. 